Sermons are not going to be as neat and tidy as they often were. But uh, I think, well, I just got louder. Did you hear what I said before I got louder? Uh, We're just going to continue through this section because uh, uh, I don't want to feel that I've rushed it or left it unclear. That would be the worst of both worlds. So, as I say, it may mean for a, a few sermons not as neat and tidy as they usually are. But stay with me and I promise nobody will be harmed. I am a professional or something. So, that said, let us pray together. What a privilege and a wonder it is, our God, that you bring us so deeply into your counsels, as you do here in these words of our Lord Jesus, where we have the great uh, privilege and honor and joy and, and mystery of hearing the eternal Son speaking to his Father. We hear your Son's adoring words to you. And the words we hear challenge us, they, they crush our pride, they demolish man-centered systems, they lay us low in the dust. And that's exactly where you want us, poor in spirit, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, trembling at your word. Speak to us today and help us here. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the wonderful tools the church has for instruction is the Heidelberg Catechism. I wonder how many of you know the first question and answer. It's worth the price of admission all by itself. The first question is, what is thy only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is that I am not my own, but in body and soul, I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has redeemed me from all my sin. Uh, Pardon me, has made satisfaction for all my sin and redeemed me from all the power of the devil. And so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready henceforth to live to him. Wow, that is such a wonderful truth. But the second question and answer are just as good. The second question of the catechism is, how many things are necessary for thee to know that thou, enjoying this comfort, mayest live and die happily? And the answer is three. The first, how great my sins and miseries are. The second, how I may be delivered from all my sins and miseries. The third, how shall I express my gratitude to God for such deliverance? There is a lot of biblical wisdom in that answer. Part of my happiness lies in knowing how great my sins and miseries are. Because if I don't, then I don't know how great the salvation is that delivers me from those sins and miseries. Amen? What does the Lord Jesus say? Him who is forgiven much, loves much. Him who's forgiven little, loves little. And if we don't know the depth of our need and misery before God, well, then we don't appreciate the great salvation of God. So, to reset a little bit, why are we here? Why, why do we gather? We're here because we want to know Jesus. Amen? We want to know the real Jesus. We want to know him as he is in himself. Not filtered through our culture. Not interpreted by man-made 
traditions and systems, but we want to know what he is, who he is, what he says from his own mouth. And so as I preach this Jesus to you, what is my burden? My burden is to serve God, to serve eternity, and to do that by preaching faithfully. This is my charge, to preach faithfully. That is how I serve God. That's how I serve eternity. But also, secondly, I want to serve my time and serve you by preaching clearly and clarifyingly in a way that connects God's eternal truth with all of us so that we can see it, understand it, taste it, be challenged by it, and embrace it. So uh, this section that we're in, I tell you, is truth that is underpreached for good and for bad reasons. Some people look to this section and they realize that this is challenging truth. This is divisive truth. This is truth that makes some people angry. But it is in the Bible. And some good men choose to move very quickly past it and go to the, 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 the parts that we more like to hear, that maybe make us feel more uplifted and more happy. But this is the joy and the challenge of verse-by-verse preaching. And to my mind, it's the point of verse-by-verse preaching. That if I were left to choose the topics myself, well, that would be one thing. But if I preach verse-by-verse then you and I are forced to face everything that's in the word, or else you will know, seems like the pastor went awful fast through that part. I wonder why. Well, we're not through this part, because honestly, I believe that this is a part that is very much undertaught, very much underpreached, and very much misunderstood by Christians, and I think the effects are bad. They're lamentable. They, they hurt our faith, and they hurt our lives, and they prevent us from the happiness we would otherwise know. As the Heidelberg Catechism says, the first thing we need to know to be able to live and die happily is the miseries and the greatness of our sins. So last week we we spent time seeing how Jesus sees God, which is revealed in the Old Testament, that Jesus sees God as the sovereign creator and Lord of all, who designed all, who created all with a plan in mind, and who oversees and controls and rules over all, that everything comes to his appointed end. And we saw that we were given a perfectly just, perfectly wise test in the person of our first father, Adam. And that in his failure of that test, we all of us were condemned, we were guilty, we've all had our chance, a perfectly devised chance, devised by God's wisdom, No better plan could have been devised than God did, or else God would have. And in that test, we all fell, and we all were brought into death, and sin, and guilt, and condemnation, and corruption. Now, this is the world Jesus comes into. This is why Jesus' first word is repent. He doesn't say, if you need to repent, you really should repent. Because he knows, because all are fallen and dead and guilty in Adam, there's only two kinds of people in the world. There are those who have repented and those who need to repent, but there's nobody who doesn't need to repent. And so this tells us a great deal and helps us understand why he says that and why he says what he's saying in this section. We're looking at verses 25 and 26, where after the apparent failure, quote-unquote, of this uh, mission to the cities, where they'd seen such great marvels from Jesus and heard the word of God, but they'd not repented. And we see at that point, Jesus in response said, I openly acknowledge you, Father, Lord of heaven and of earth, that you hid these things from the wise and comprehending and you reveal them to infants. Yes, indeed, Father. Because in this way, 
what was a delight before you came to be. So looking at these words together, wanting to know the actual Jesus, first we see the celebration of God in verse 25a. The celebration of God in verse 25a. And I wonder, as you hear me say that, how many of you wonder what way I mean that? Because that phrase has ambiguity in English. The celebration of God could mean God's own celebration, couldn't it? Grammatically, it could mean God's celebration. Or the celebration of God could mean celebrating God. It could be object or subject of that phrase. Which way do I mean it? In this case, I mean it both ways. Because what we're seeing in this section is God's celebration of God, are we not? We're seeing God the Son celebrating God the Father. And this, by the way, in itself teaches us so much. That we, if we don't watch ourselves, every one of us will drift back to the world's default setting of assuming that everything is about who? It's about you, it's about me, it's about us. Man is the measure of all things, as the philosopher said. Man is the center of the universe. And even Christians, if we don't watch ourselves, drift into that thinking. But what does the Bible say? Whatever you do, whether you eat or whether you drink, do all what? To the glory of God. Because one day the earth will be filled with what? The glory of God as the water fills the sea. This is what the universe is for. This is what we're for. This is what the plan of salvation even is all about. It's not about the good of man primarily. It's about the glory of God. And so God celebrates here. God celebrates God. God the Son celebrates his Father. Now first let us note then it's season, letter A, it's season. At that point, now Matthew says this very deliberately. At that point, what point? The point at which the cities had not repented at the preaching of Jesus and his apostles. The very point of the mission's apparent failure Now, if Jesus believed what many Christians believed, if Jesus had the the big man, little God view that many Christians have drifted off or fled off into, what might he say at the point of this failure of the mission, quote-unquote? He might have said to the, he might have lamented to the Father and said, oh, Father, oh, we tried so hard to bring them all to repentance We so hoped they would. We tried everything we know how to try, and yet we were defeated. Yet we were beaten back by the sovereign power of their will. We had to admit and throw up our hands that there was nothing that we could do. If only we could do something. If only we had some power, but alas, we are powerless and we are overcome and we must resign ourselves either to failure or to try harder next time. Does Jesus say anything like that? Well, he says nothing like that. Why does he say nothing like that? Because of the speaker, letter B, of this celebration. Because of who it is that says this, Matthew says, Jesus in response said, oh, we've got to remember it's Jesus who's speaking. Well, have you ever seen this Jesus overwhelmed, powerless, defeated? What did Matthew just finish showing us in chapters 8 and 9? The power of Jesus in every realm. He tells a wind to shut up, and it does. He tells a terrifying horde of demons to scatter, and they scatter. He tells a man that his sins are forgiven, and they're forgiven. He has power in the realm of nature, in the supernatural realm, in the spiritual realm. 
And so at this Jesus, we don't ever hear speaking defeatedly or dejectedly or in some way that, he, that, that shows that he just did not have what he wanted to accomplish, accomplish. He wasn't able to do God's will. We don't see that ever. In fact, remember, again, I take you back to his first word, which was repent. And what does that word remind us? That he's going into a world that is all of it heading in the wrong direction. Do you follow me? Because if, if, if it weren't, his first word wouldn't be repent. His first would be, those of you who are bad, <laughs> if this applies to you, listen up when I say, but he doesn't. He doesn't need to know anything about his audience to say that they need to repent. Because it's a world that is, as we just were reminded from Psalm 14, all of it not seeking God. All of it doing its best to forget God and remind, erase every appearance of God from the universe. And so uh, Jesus says repent because he knows it's a world full of God's enemies who will always be God's enemies unless they repent. And what does he say in his Sermon on the Mount to those who have repented? Well, remember, the, the eighth and the ninth Beatitudes all warned that we would be what? We'd be persecuted, we'd be reviled, the world would not love us and thank us for our witness. And what does he say in charging the missionaries in chapter 10? I'm sending you out as what in the midst of what? Sheep in the midst of wolves. And he warns them that men will betray them and they, they will persecute them and they will think that they've served God if they can do them to death. Jesus has his eyes wide open about what the world is and what the default setting of the world is. We have read both that he has compassion on his sheep and he sends them out to look for the lost sheep. We don't read a lot about his compassion towards the goats or the wolves. He warns them of them. To send them out to preach, not knowing which ones will be wolves or sheep, they preach to all of them. And God does his sovereign will with his word as he pleases, which is what Jesus is about to say, as we will see. So, how does Jesus look at this? How is it that Jesus can regard this, this actual Jesus? Well, we will come uh, closer to an understanding of that. We've noted the celebration season, we've noted its speaker. Now let's note its sound, letter C, its sound. And what do I mean by that? Jesus says, I openly acknowledge you, Father. Now my question is, in saying this, does Jesus sound dejected? Does this sound like a defeated words, depressed words, disappointed words? Or does Jesus sound in any way embarrassed or hesitant or conflicted? This word, I openly acknowledge you, it's, it's the opposite of what Peter does at the trial of Jesus, where he's asked, well, weren't you, I think I, yeah, I'm sure I saw you with Jesus. And what does Peter say? Never heard of him. No idea what you're talking about. What was his name? Don't even know that name. What's he doing? He's denying Jesus. This is the opposite of that. This is Jesus openly acknowledging his father. And, and the word has the... Uh, the, the nuance of thanking and praising and, and a public embrace. Jesus absolutely, completely, unhesitatingly, gladly identifies himself with his Father and with everything that his Father is doing, both in hiding and in revealing. Jesus embraces this out loud and in front of everybody, robustly and 100% in for all that his Father does. 
This is the real Jesus. The real Jesus, there's, you cannot drive an atom between him and his father. He's all in, and he's all in out loud. So he starts off with a note of celebration, not of defeat, not of dejection, not of disappointment, but of celebration. That's the sound we hear in these words. I openly acknowledge you. Father. And let's look now at its subject. We've seen the season, the speaker, the sound. Now the subject of God's celebration of God, the first word he says is Father. And that is God's relationship to Jesus. I remind you, Jesus never calls God our Father. Because Jesus doesn't have the same relationship of Father and Son that you and I, if we're believers, have. Uh, God has adopted sons. God has created sons. Uh, Sinners have been adopted into his family. Angels are called sons of God. But he's only got one eternal son. Only one son who is of the same essence as he. Who is every bit as much God as he is. We will never be. There's that axiom, you know, if if you ever weren't God, you never will be God. Because it's one of the things about being God that you're eternal and immutable. And that's what God the Son was. Eternal, immutable, equally with the Father. I remind you of chapter 1 where we were introduced to Jesus. And what did we see? We saw a virgin betrothed to a man from the, the line of David. And this virgin is with child. And this child who is born would be God with us and would be the Son of God. He would be God the Son. And so Jesus either says, Father... Or he speaks to people of my father. Or he talks to people about your father. But he doesn't say our father. He doesn't share the same relationship. He has an absolutely unique relationship with his father. So this first word takes us into that. This is the eternal son speaking to the eternal father. We are overhearing a conversation that has been going on since before the first atom winked into existence. The next thing he says is Lord of heaven and of earth. That's God's relationship to the universe. He is father to Jesus. He is Lord of heaven and of earth to the universe. And remember who Jesus, the God of whom Jesus speaks was last week. Everything the Old Testament says. The God who in the beginning spoke everything into existence out of nothing with his end already in mind. The God who always accomplishes his will and accomplishes all of his will. The God who is, when we say he's Lord of heaven and earth, that's a figure of speech meaning and everything in between. These are the two poles, heaven and earth, and that means that he's Lord there and everywhere in between. Just as when God says he's the Alpha and Omega, he doesn't mean he's just the first and last letters of the alphabet. He means he's the full alphabet. When he says he's the beginning and the end, he doesn't mean he shows up at the start of the story, vanishes and reappears at the end. He means he's the whole story. He devised, he designed, he oversees, he guides, he controls, he brings to fruition exactly the story that he meant to tell. He's God. And so I remind you that we saw from Scripture that sovereignty is not something God does. What is sovereignty? It's who God is is. So he is sovereign uh, 24, 7, 365, infinity. It is, it is of the nature of God and, and people who've tried to get away from and around the size of the God of Scripture try to say that, well, he, he gives up his sovereignty here and there, temporarily or just a little bit. You, you might as well say he gave up his holiness here and he gave up his righteousness and his justice and his wisdom there. He cannot do those things. Were he to do those things, well, he wouldn't be immutable anymore. 
and he wouldn't be God anymore. Sovereignty is who God is, and it's the God that Jesus proclaims to us, certainly. And if we thought that there was uh, an area that had barbed wire all around it and that was a keep-out area for God, if we were to imagine that the will of man is something over which God doesn't have sovereignty, that somehow he has ungodded himself within that wire and he can only go up to it, but beyond that barbed wire, he's helpless and he, he can't do anything because that, that's just like a part of the universe that is out of his control. If that were true, then at least two things would follow uh, inexorably. The first thing that would follow is nobody would be saved. And if my saying that surprises you, then we kind of need to replay everything that we saw last week because, and, and that we read at the start of the service from Psalm 14 because choosing freely what we want to do Choosing freely what our heart desires, we would none of us choose not to be God. That was the whole thing of Genesis 3. I want to be like God. I want to know like God. And that's all of us. As went Adam, so go we all. And if we were left to freely choose what our hearts want to choose, then that's what we would always choose. So nobody would be saved. And the second certain consequence would be we couldn't trust anything God says. Because if there's parts of the universe that are hands off for God, that he has no no say over, well then how can we trust any of his promises? How can we trust any of his predictions? And yet it's his insistence that he declares the end from the beginning. So, no, the, the scriptural God is a sovereign God. That's of his nature. Many Christians would say, oh, I absolutely believe in the sovereignty of God. And then you'd hear about 47 buts. And by the time you got past the 47th but, God's not really very sovereign anymore. He's well-meaning. His heart's in the right place, but his hands are tied. He's done everything he can. And now it's really up to us. In which case, I'd want to say, God help us, but the whole point would be, he can't. (laughs) He's done all he can. He's done. And that's not the biblical doctrine of God's sovereignty. In fact, Jesus calls him Lord of, heaven, Lord of heaven and of earth. And what's his next word? Is it but? No, his next word is that. Or because. Those are both good translations of the, of the Greek word. I thank you that or I thank you because. So we need to learn here that Jesus always and enthusiastically sides with his Father. Let me just stress that a little bit for, uh, more before I move on. Because if you haven't, you will. Here, there have been over the years all sorts of attempts to try to drive a wedge between Jesus and his Father. Um, for one thing, in our corrupt, miserable day, uh, we, we don't really, we're made com- uncomfortable by heroes. We don't believe that there is any such thing as a hero anymore. So we're having fewer and fewer actual heroes in any movies or, or books. I'll give you a, a simple example. If you've read The Lord of the Rings and then you've seen the movies, The Lord of the Rings, you read in the books of very heroic characters, Aragorn and Faramir. But then decades later when they're translated into movies, well, that's not our day. We don't do heroes. So these characters have to be made conflicted and full of angst and torn in different directions and unsure of themselves. This is not what was written, but this is our age. And so people like to envision Jesus that way, that he was torn. He was torn between his father's will and and love for man or something like that. And people have tried in past centuries to say, well, God just wanted to send us all to hell, but then Jesus came in and 
argued with him and took the bullet for us and so forth. But, but this is all fantasy. This is all fiction. There, there is no such Jesus. The Jesus we see in Scripture, the only Jesus who ever was, is a Jesus who came to do the will of his Father and did it gladly with all his heart and openly acknowledges God and his sovereignty, both in hiding these things from the wise and comprehending and in revealing them to infants. Jesus does not like one better than the other. He embraces both. He acknowledges God for both. If we want to learn of Jesus and if we want to follow Jesus, then we will want to do the same thing. If we see God like Jesus does, then we will just as openly embrace all of the purposes of God. Do you see? To the degree we don't, then we're not following the example and we're not learning from Christ. So, we've seen the celebration of God. We've seen God's celebration of God. Now let's look at the the sovereignty of God in verses 25b and 26. And first, we'll see how far we get in looking at its operation. Verse 25, parts B and C, its operation. And first, in verse 25b, we see its operation in reprobation. R-E-P-R-O-B. Reprobation. Here's what Jesus says. At that point, in response, uh, sorry, at that point, Jesus, in response, said, I openly acknowledge you, Father, Lord of heaven and of earth, that, or because you hid these things from the wise and comprehending. So the first place Jesus goes is the last place we would go, probably, if we would ever go there. But he he doesn't view this as something that's an accident or embarrassing or something that he'd rather gloss over to get to the good part. This is where he starts. That this, this failure of these people to repent reflects God's sovereign will in hiding these things. Why? They were out in public. They were out in full daylight. Why did they not see them? Because God hid these things from them. That's what Jesus says. And he openly acknowledges and praises God for it. So this distinction depends on our understanding, the the sovereign will of God. Let's take a look and understand these words the best we can. Jesus says, I openly acknowledge you, Father, that or because you hid these things from the wise and understanding. Now, now who are these wise and comprehending? Is is this a a special subset of unbelievers? As as if you've got, uh, well, you've got believers over here. Let's forget about them for a minute. But you've got unbelievers But in this, you've got many categories. You've got the seeking ones and the open-hearted ones and the well-meaning ones. But here's the really bad ones. These are the ones that Jesus is talking about here. And uh, the gospel, these truths are hidden only from those. Is it a subset of really bad people? No. It's just everybody who didn't repent. Don't you see? Jesus only sees two people. Those who repent because God has revealed these things to them and made them infants. And those from whom these things are hidden. And so they don't repent. But there's only two. Those who don't repent. And those who do repent. And these words characterize those who don't repent. Every last one of them. A person who does not repent at the word of God. Is what Jesus characterizes very sarcastically. Very bitingly. Very acidly. Wise and comprehending. Wise and comprehending in whose eyes? In the world's eyes. In God's eyes? Not at all in God's eyes. 
to God, wisdom and knowledge begin with the fear of the Lord. These people, Scripture says, there's no fear of the Lord before their eyes. So the wisdom they have. Jeremiah says, they've rejected the word of the Lord. What wisdom do they have? If somebody rejects God's word, all that's left is folly and madness. And that's the people Jesus speaks of here. Let me show you a few of many verses that show this. Uh, Turn to Romans chapter 1. And see, this is the portrait of what all are in Adam. Of what we became when he fell. So Romans 1, we will look first at verses 22 and 23, 21 and 22, sorry. In verse 18, Paul began this section saying that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and irreverence of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This is what we do. <clears throat> look at these specifics. <clears throat> verses 21 and 22. Although they knew God, We've talked about that. Every man knows there's a God. He is surrounded and filled with testimonies to the reality of God. He has to shut his eyes to them. He has to suppress that truth. So, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, more literally glorify him as God, or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. I'd nuance that a little differently. That word is is a little strident. Insisting they were wise. Stamping their foot and telling everyone that they were wise. What happened to them? Well, they were made morons. The the Greek word emoronthesan. We get the word moron from that. Their rejection of God and insistence that they could be wise apart from God had the result that they were made morons. Made morons by who? By God. This is part of the judgment for their sin. Turning from God, there is no good place to turn. Turning from God is to turn from light and wisdom and joy and purpose, and there's no good place to turn. And this is the fruits that is, that is reaped by all. All insist they are wise, but are made morons. So this is not a subset. This is everybody. Look at 1 Corinthians, I don't know if I, did I say that, that was Romans 1, 21 and 22. I don't know if my head was in a different location, but that was Romans 1, 21 and 22. Now we look at 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 through 20. And Paul is here talking about the specific reason why he doesn't tailor his message to suit the people he's preaching to. Verse 18, for the word of the cross, the the teaching, the doctrine, the preaching of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Now that's a very strong statement. To them it just looks stupid. That's how they honestly see it. It just is the dumbest thing they've ever heard to preach a crucified Messiah. It is folly to those who are perishing. Oh, there's their problem. They're cut off from the life of God. They don't see anything right particularly Christ's cross. But to us, he says, who are being saved, it is the power of God. Well, there's that same division Jesus speaks of in Matthew chapter 11, isn't it? The wise and comprehending from whom these things are hid and the infants to whom these things are revealed. Well, all of them, he says, the whole world sees the crosses as moronic, as as foolish, as folly. But then verse 19 says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Those are just the same two Greek words we have in Matthew 11. 
Same Greek words I translate wise and comprehending. And here Paul quotes a verse saying that God will destroy their wisdom and their comprehension. And then he says, where is the one who's wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made moronic? Again, that word morino. Has not God made moronic the wisdom of the world? And I'll just read one more. For since the wisdom of the world, uh, sorry, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The cross is not the best message the world has to offer. Amen? It's not a message the world has to offer at all. It is a message that to the world is the dumbest thing they've ever heard. But it's exactly what they need to hear. Why? Look at chapter 2, verse 14. The natural person, that is the unregenerate person, the person devoid of the Spirit of God, the natural person does not accept, you could translate that, does not welcome. He doesn't gladly embrace the things of the Spirit of God, for they're folly to him. They are folly to him. I just struggle for ways to make this as clear as I can, and, and this is a silly example. Um, but I assume there are people here who... Let me, let me do it this way, because I always say the same thing. Let me say something a little different. I really love spinach. I know not everyone loves spinach. Now, suppose you really don't love spinach. You don't like spinach at all. Well, suppose I explained to you how great spinach is, and, and all the wonders of spinach. And suppose I showed you uh, five hours of Popeye the Sailor Man cartoons and showed you that you could be strong to the finish if you eat your spinach, just like Popeye the Sailor Man. My mind wonders, you know, what if he'd eaten squash instead of spinach? But, but we'll never know. Uh, but could my explaining how great spinach is and showing you the Popeye cartoons, would that make you like spinach? Would that make you want a nice steaming plate of buttery spinach if you don't like spinach? Wouldn't have any effect at all, because that's your reaction to it. It's, ah. Same with me and, and, and squash. Uh, you know, God love him. I've had people try to explain how different their squash is and how I'd really love it. And all these explanations had no effect because I just don't like it. You can't talk me into liking it. I, 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 it, it repels me. And um, as spinach may repel you. Well, this is like that. You can't talk the world. You can't reason them into thinking the cross makes perfect sense and embracing it because they're the world. And these things are hidden from them because Paul says, like ben, 1 Corinthians 2.14, they are folly to him, and he is, read it, not able. Greek says exactly that. He does not have the power to understand them. Why? Because they're spiritually discerned. And when in Adam we turned in rebellion against the wisdom of God, uh, we became in rebellion against the things of the Spirit of God. So again, we're not talking about a subset of the world. This is the world. This is everyone who doesn't repent, is wise and comprehending, and the things of the gospel are hidden from them. And you say, well, how did that happen? Well, just briefly, remember Genesis 3? Remember about the fruit. The fruit was the one fruit God said, don't eat. You will die. It's the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And rather than submitting to God and learning good and evil on God's terms, Eve thought it was a great idea to eat that fruit and become wise. And Adam, eyes full open, followed and ate the fruit himself as well. And that was our rebellion. And as a consequence, our knower was broken. 
our way of thinking and evaluating. Sin corrupts everything in our nature. It, it completely undoes us. And so our way of knowing is broken. And things don't look like they should. And the whole, the whole world of the things of God looks like squash or spinach to us, whichever one you hate the most. It, it is repellent and stupid. It makes no sense whatever. Why? Because there's something repellent and stupid about it? Not at all. What's the problem? It's us. It's our knower. We're broken. Sin broke us. So what does God do then here? In, in, we'll talk about this in more detail in just a moment. Just a moment. But just to say very briefly that for God to hide these things from these self-wise and self-comprehending does not require him to add any sin or evil to them at all. It's just a matter of allowing the sin and evil that's in them to have fuller control because it's already there. This all happened at the fall. And so God, God doesn't need to do any additional. God doesn't tempt anyone to evil. God simply needs to, well, I'll talk about how he does it, but God has enough in the heart of a fallen man to do all the hiding and deceiving that needs to be done. So let's talk and try to understand scripturally how does this hiding work of which Jesus speaks. Because Jesus says, you hide these things from the wise and comprehending. Now, God is the ultimate author and Lord over everything, but there are ways of causing. There's direct causation, like if I pick up this piece of paper or if I were to ask Travis to come up and pick it up. It would have been my idea, but I would have had Travis help me with it. Or I could have asked Travis to add one of, ask one of his brothers and sisters. There'd be, there'd be three things involved, although it still would be my idea. Well, how does God hide these things from the wise and comprehending? I find four ways at a minimum. Four ways at a minimum. The first, sin does it all by itself. This is what it is to die. Look at Genesis chapter 3 with me. Look at Genesis chapter 3. Let's just get our heads in the right place as we, as we go there. <clears throat> so here's Adam and Eve created in the image of God. They have every word they need from God. They're provided with everything in the world that they need. They have a, a world of wonders created for them by God and given to them with only one thing withheld from them for their own good. And God tells them in the day you eat of it, you will die. And as I've shown you in the past, and you can also read more in my little green book, they did die right away. And, and that dying involved every part of their being, spiritually, intellectually, socially, emotionally, and ultimately physically. But the dying was instantaneous. And here's the proof of it. So they've just done this horrible sin and they instantly know it, right? Their eyes are open, but not to the promised wisdom. Their eyes are open to what? <gasps> We're naked. Suddenly that's a problem. And they hear God coming. Now, suppose you hadn't read the story before and you're thinking, they're hearing God, they're hearing God coming. Now, who's this God? This God is the most beautiful, perfect, desirable being in the entire universe. Angels veil their eyes before his glory. He is love, he is wisdom, he is light, he is purity. He's their creator. And they hear him coming. And they've just done a horrible thing, but what would be the most natural thing but to run to him, right? Throw themselves on their faces before him and say, oh, can you forgive us? Oh, we've done a horrible, unwise thing. But you are, you are all light. You're all love. You're all wisdom. Is there anything that you can do to help us from this mis... Well, look at Genesis 3.8 to see what in fact they did do. 
And they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife, what do you read? Hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God among the trees of the garden. The one person in the universe they need to see more than anyone. And their first overwhelming instinct is to hide from them. Why? Because they died. Because their knower was broken. Because the things of God were hidden from them. Sin had ruined their way of perceiving. And God, no longer desirable, is the most horrible thing in the universe. Now, you want to understand the Bible's teaching about free will. There it is. That's what free will is. The Bible does not speak of the will as if it's some free-floating, self-determining power in the universe that even God can't touch. The Bible never talks about it that way. What is the will in the Bible? It's our heart making choices. Okay, so since the fall, where's our heart? Right here. And so what is their free will? Their free will is, let's see, shall we hide behind that tree or hide behind that tree or hide behind that tree? Or hide behind that tree. But does it occur to them not to hide at all? Nope. Why? What does the Bible say? They're dead in trespasses and sins. Their eyes are blinded. They suppress the truth of God. What does the Bible say? They hate God. They're not able to submit to the law of God. What does the Bible say? They shrink from God and flee from God. You see? And so they freely choose to hide from God. John MacArthur has said something like that free will in the fallen man is the will to choose the next way he's going to offend God. You can choose the next sin you're going to sin. That is what freedom is. You do it because that's what your heart wants. But friend, left to ourselves, that's all our heart will ever want. As we read right here in the words of Jesus, it takes a positive act of God to change that. It takes the choice of the Son of God to change that. We don't have it within ourselves. We don't need to be helped. What do we need? need to be saved. So, first way, sin all by itself hides God's beauty. Secondly, God allows Satan to hide his beauty. I just remind you of the words that we read at the start of the service, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, where we read that in whose case the gospel is veiled, in, those, in whose case the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. All God has to do is let Satan do what Satan wants to do and he will hide the gospel's glory. Do you remember the book of Job? And reading the opening chapters, God and Satan, and they dispute about Job and, and you know that God allows Satan to go do horrible things to Job. Now, the book, of, the book says that God did these things. The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. But we know that the way that the Lord did that as, as the Lord of all is he permitted Satan to do it. But, but apart from the will of God, Satan could not have broken a potato chip of Job's. He needed permission. But you note that the second he got permission, what does he say? Does he say thank you? Does he say I'll be right back? No, he's gone. Second, he's given permission. He's out to do it because that's what he wants to do. And so it is in the blinding of sinners. God permits Satan to do it. And he is always happy and willing to do it. That's what he most wants to do. Thirdly, God gives sinners over to their sin. The worst penalty for sin is sin. Look at Romans chapter 1 one more time from a slightly different angle. 
Romans chapter 1. I know many of you are, are familiar with this, but remember, not everybody is. Uh, for every one person who, who says here, I've heard this taught before, I, I'm pretty sure there'd be three or four who would say, I've never heard this taught before. Not because it's not there, but just because it's not necessarily popular teaching. It's not how to fill your churches, if that's the most important thing. But if you want to fill them with the truth of God, well then, yes, that is the most important thing. Teach the whole counsel of God. So Romans chapter 1, verse 18, again, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so what does God do to these sinners? Verse 22, they claim to be wise, but they were made fools. And verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. And then uh, verse uh, 28 And since they did not fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. You see, it was not the need, God did not need to do anything additional to them, but simply to remove the restraints on what was already in them, to give them over to the sin that was already in them. So if you, if you look at it biblically, I believe that you would say that this, um, that sin is the reason for their unrepentance and the penalty for their unrepentance. You see? The refusal to acknowledge God's truth simply leads to more abandonment to sin and less restraint from sin. And the fourth way that the Bible speaks of is that God does blind and harden. Isaiah 6, verses 9 through 10. The more Isaiah preached, the more people would be blind and deaf and hardened to the things of God. Jesus will repeat that in Matthew 13, we'll see. Or again, Romans 9, 18. Take a look there with me. I think if you're still in Romans, it'll be easy to turn, but I'll turn to Romans 9, 18. After speaking of the examples of Jacob and Esau, who, apart from being fallen, like all men, had done nothing, And yet God, before their birth, were doing anything, says Jacob, I loved, Esau, I hated. Then Paul says in verse 18, so then, and he'd spoken of Pharaoh as well, who God announces he would harden uh, before anything has happened, and indeed he hardens, and Pharaoh hardens his own heart, and it turns out exactly as God said it would. And so then he says, verse 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Just a little more literally, wherefore then whom he wishes he shows mercy and whom he wishes he hardens. And when you carefully examine the context and all the Greek words and do word studies and look at the background and everything, what this verse really means is exactly what it sounds like it means. He shows mercy on who he wishes, he hardens whom he wishes. All are fallen, none are owed any, none is owed anything but but justice. But God does show mercy to some. And the rest, he leaves in their sin. He leaves uh, in the miseries of their sin. Because the fall brought in all all of the attendant miseries leading up to eternal death. But on the way to eternal death, there are a great many more miseries. And, and th- this may help us understand this. Suppose I, I told you about a man. Very sad story. A married man with children and a job. But one day... He's taken away from his wife. Well, that's sad, isn't it? And he's taken away from his children. He's not able to to associate with his children any longer. 
Well, okay, this sad thing has become a tragedy. Well, and he loses his job as well. Oh no, this gets worse and worse. And he loses the right to associate with any of his friends. You say, oh, this poor guy. He can't go fishing anymore. Ah, He can't watch baseball. He can't do anything he wants the way he wants it. And ultimately, his life is taken away and he dies. Oh, is that a sad story or what? What if I tell you the government did all those things to him? Oh, I'm in Texas. Now you're mad. You say, isn't that just what the government does? Yeah, that, that, that makes perfect sense. I can totally see that happening. But what if I tell you that the reason the government did that is because he's a convicted murderer? Because he committed murder, he was justly accused, justly tried, justly sentenced, justly executed. Well, now you see everything differently, don't you? And all those sad things that I detailed, those are all parts of the consequence of his crime, weren't they? Are you with me? So, all of the miseries that befall us are consequences of sin. When we talk about God's treatment of Pharaoh or of Esau or or of the men of this day or anybody, we need to remember we are talking about people who have had their last chance. And they had it in Genesis 3. There was a trial, there was a conviction, and now there's a sentence. And nothing from in that situation will change the situation. What is the only hope? Something outside of the situation will change the situation. What's the gospel? It's exactly that. And until we understand the first part, we won't really appreciate the second part. Now, I'm not going to go further this week, but I want to draw some more things out about that and show you the use of that and why it's so very important to us now. Let me show you from a couple of different angles. First of all, just in terms of our personal life, I've found, now that I'm, what, 90, 100 years old or, or whatever it is, I've observed over time that the greatest cause of happiness Uh, Sorry, the greatest cause of unhappiness in us is very often our disappointed expectations. Do you follow me? That, That we expected better, that we thought we were owed better, we should have been treated better, things should have turned out better for us, and sometimes that carries over into God. We think he should have answered some prayers better, should have been listening more closely when we spoke, he should have worked things in our life differently. But then when we come back to this, we realize where we start from. And how much we depend on the grace and the sovereign will of God. And how we owe everything to God and his grace. It very much changes our perspective about our stand before him. And I I know that many people have been taught a man-centered gospel. uh, Which is very common in Christianity. Which paints God as, as trying his best to save every last man, woman, and child. But really helpless to do the most important thing which is left up to us. And so, so when we're saved, it really, that's the part we do. We couldn't have done it without him, true, but he couldn't have done it without us either. But when we understand man the way the Bible picks us, we realize that could never happen. We don't have that in us. We don't have that ability. We were, a, we were roadkill. What we needed was not to be told to get out of the road. We needed life. And that's what the gospel does. It's the sovereign gift of life, one for God's people by Christ on the cross. It changes the whole way we see ourselves before God and the whole way we see our salvation. But here's another thing that I I want you to think about that I I hope is strengthening and helpful to you as it is being to me. Well, uh, 
This is something particularly if you are a Christian who cares about the advance of the gospel and if you are an American who cares about the state of your country. Are you happy about where things are? Or are you concerned? Well, you're very concerned. Because you look out and you see so many people. Well, you you see a country that is... It's like it's in a competition for who can come up with the dumbest idea today. And every day has a new winner. (laughs) And every next day has a bunch of contestants uh, vying for the prize. But why is that? Well, because that is... The further we get from God, that is the only place to go. And although this country was founded with a respect for God's word and God's truth, even by men who were not themselves Christians, well, more and more, we just don't need that. We just don't need that. We're very prosperous. We're very smart. And the more we go from that, the more we step into chaos and insanity and madness. And we look at that and, and, well, it's got to tear us up. But even more disappointing, you look at people who should be leaders and you see that they're they're trying to get the world to like them. They're supposed to be Christians. We, we respected them just a week ago. And today they're trying to be as like the world as they can so the world can like them. And you just, how, how can this be? And you wonder in your heart, maybe you don't think it, but you, you feel like it's just everything off the rails. Has God lost control of this? Is there any hope at all? But aren't we very much in the same place that Jesus was here? I mean, let me ask you, have I ever preached as good a sermon as Jesus preached? You can answer that one. No, and I never will. And, unless I just read, the, read one of Jesus' sermons. That's the best I'll ever preach. Uh, and then the next best is when I reach, read a Spurgeon sermon. Uh, but no, I, I never will. And do we do the miracles Jesus and his apostles did? No, we don't ever do that. But he did, and people still rejected. And how did he respond? Was he crushed? Did he give up? Not at all. He praised God for his sovereignty. He saw God's sovereign hand equally in the rejection of the unbelievers and in the repentance of the believers. So how could he be happy about that? Because he wasn't like we tend to be. Because the most important thing to Jesus was not the dignity and well-being of man, but the glory of God. And God is glorified in the salvation of a sinner And God is glorified in the damnation of an unrepentant man or woman. God is glorified when he shows mercy. And God is glorified when he shows justice. God is glorified. And that's the most important thing. And that's what Jesus delighted in. And that's what Jesus rested in. And that's what we should rest in as well. We are right on schedule. So what should we do? Well, we should cling all the closer to God, knowing how desperately we need him. And, and that phrase that we've probably spoken should take on double meaning. What do we say? There but for the grace of God go I. Oh, but that's literally true. Amen? You look at every bit of madness in the world, you say to yourself, there but for the grace of God go I. I look at... My generation before I was saved, I didn't do all of the outward things they all did. Uh, But why? Because I was better? No, I was just afraid and lacked opportunity. I I mean, really, I I was one of those kids who the the films about drug use worked on. It it scared me. I didn't want to do that. It wasn't because I was moral. I just didn't want to jump off a building or all the things I saw in these. But my friends were were bolder, and so they did it. it. Was Was I better than they? No, I was restrained. And all the other evils, I simply lacked opportunity. But if I'd had the opportunity and wasn't afraid, 
I would have passed them all by. I had in my heart enough sin to send me to hell forever without the opportunities. But this is what we're seeing here. God's restraint is the only reason that we don't all go as far as we can. It's the grace of God that holds us back as individuals and as a society. And God is not obliged to extend that grace. And what we see in our society, the more man announces we don't need God, the more God says, let's see how that works for you. But we already know how it works. Awfully. So, we cling all the closer to God and we pray to God because we know that God sent revival in the days of King Josiah. He sent revival in the days of King Hezekiah. He sent revival in the days of Jonathan Edwards. But all the more we must pray to him. And there's a point to it. If we had that small God that so many Christians have, I don't know why we would pray. Because that God's already doing the best he can. So what would praying be? Try harder? But we believe in the God who is equally the God who hides these things from the wise and comprehending and reveals them to babes. And so we pray. And we know from Scripture that the prayer of his saints is how God effects his decrees. And he will send a revival when he chooses to in answer to the prayers of his saints. And so we will pray all the more uh, diligently and earnestly knowing that there is no human method that can solve this problem. Just a movement of the Spirit of God. Only a movement of the Spirit of God in the sovereign grace of God. So let us beseech God for that. And let us strive and sow seed that he might use towards that end. Amen. So let me give you a moment to consider these things and then we will close in prayer. Finish notes. Jot down thoughts. God, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you that you are the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and you are the Lord of heaven and earth. And we bow before you in the dust. We tremble at your word. We humble ourselves that you might exalt us in your due time. We draw near to you that you might draw near to us. We see your righteous hand in our society judging the proud unbelief and the proud rebellion against God in our society. We cannot build a case defending it. There is no defense. We, we are before you ashamed and embarrassed, afraid to lift up our eyes to you, as Daniel says. But we pray for mercy. We pray that you will send revival. We pray that you will grant power to your word, preached, spoken, and read, that you will convict men and women of sin and show them the glory of God in the face of Christ, that their chains might fall off, their heart might go free, they might rise, go forth, and follow thee. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.